0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS Sitrep, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. As the war in Ukraine rages in the east of the country, a first-hand account of life in the thick of it.
1: We went to a, a funeral yesterday of one soldier who died, and, and it's just heartbreaking. You know, his his mother was crying over the coffin. The entire village was out; everyone was sobbing. And this is just one life. And this is happening repeatedly every day across Ukraine.
0: We have a special report from a joint expeditionary force exercise in Finland where Ukraine is very much in
2: mind. It's the biggest neighbour and for a long time it was the biggest part for cooperation and trade. But of course everyone is talking about it a bit more now, a bit more worried. It's of course in everyone's, in everyone's back mind that there, it is happening and it is going on.
0: And, as the new Chief of the General Staff gets to work, what's in his intray, and the messages from those who took to Twitter.
2: Perhaps one of the first things that would be useful is to reevaluate the get-you-home, home-to-duty and food and incidentals allowance. They haven't changed for years, yet food and fuel has skyrocketed, leaving soldiers out of pocket and making the job less financially attractive. It's an easy win.
3: The SBS, the, forces station. the Forces Station. News,
1: discussions and analysis. This, this is Zitrep.
0: Time and again, we've heard of the strength of the will of the people of Ukraine to defend their country. Time and again, we've heard of their desperation for more weapons to do so. This week, the Defense Secretary said delivery of the MLRS, the guided Multi-Launch Rocket Systems, was imminent, and that it's considering sending more weapons, including anti-ship missiles. All eyes are on the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, where Severodonetsk is effectively cut off and being told by Russia to surrender. Nicola Smith from the Daily Telegraph is in the region and she joined us from Pokrovsk. Nicola, I understand you've just arrived in Pokrovsk. What's it like?
1: It's, it seems quite deserted from what we've seen so far. We went down to the train station and this is where the evacuation train starts. It's long journey westwards from Pokrovsk. So there, there were a lot of people on it, old people, families. And the town itself seems quite quiet. We've heard that there, there was a rocket attack a couple of nights ago. And so it's a little bit tense. And we, we arrived at, at the hotel. And the first thing that they show you is the cellar where you can take shelter if, if the air raid siren goes off. So it, it it feels like a town on edge, really. We're not within range of artillery. But it it's definitely um, much closer to to the battles in the east. And I think people are just trying to act normally, but it's always in the back of your mind that something could happen.
0: And when you spoke to those refugees who were fleeing, what did they tell you? We went on board the train while it it was stopping there. And we actually
1: found a man who was sheltering with his elderly mother and his mother-in-law for two months in the Azot chemical plant which is in Severodonnesque. So he had just, they had all just left a week ago. And he told me that they had left because the fighting was all around a chemical plant. And this is a plant where you have a lot of toxic chemicals, obviously, uh, that he was part of a team that, that was trying to repair tanks that had been damaged. There, there was one containing ammonia gas. So clearly, there's a, a huge risk to people who are sheltering there. And he said when he left, there were seven, there, there, were still hundreds of civilians sheltering there. From what we know from the, the governor of the region, he said about 500 people are still there, including 40 children, and they're sheltering in Soviet-era bunkers, which are very fortified. But Russia is attacking them with, with everything that they've got. And now Russia's cut off the three bridges that surround the city, which makes it much harder for people to evacuate. It makes it much harder for humanitarian aid to get in. And he said that they, they had about a month's supply of food left so people are obviously going to be very fearful. They're living in very difficult conditions. They're not able to really get fresh air and come out of the, the bunkers that they're, they're hiding in. And it, it sounds like a completely desperate situation.
0: And that man who escaped the chemical plants in Serodonetsk, did he tell you how he got out and how difficult it was?
1: He said that the Ukrainian army had helped him and and his elderly mother and mother-in-law to escape. So they, they transported them in armoured vans. But it's becoming more and more difficult to extract people. And the road itself is, is fraught with all kinds of danger. There's incoming artillery all the time. And unfortunately, or tragically, evacuation teams have been hit.
0: And Nicola, we've heard that the UK's MLRS, the guided multi-launch rocket systems, are about to arrive in Ukraine, that the UK will send more weapons, including anti-ship missiles. Have you got any sense of how much of a difference they'll make?
1: We do from senior officials. Unfortunately, it's not great news. The, The government is incredibly grateful to the UK for sending these rocket systems, and they have expressed their gratitude many times. But we interviewed Mikhailo Podolyak, who is um, a senior advisor to President Zelensky. We interviewed him a week ago, and he said that, of course, everything helps, but that we don't need three rocket systems, we need 300. And the problem is that not enough is coming in at all. The, the, battlefront is so long um, and it's Russia is just able to throw everything that it has at the Ukrainian forces. They're being hit constantly by artillery, by missiles, by everything that Russia has in its stocks. We went to a, a funeral yesterday of one soldier who had died. And and it's just heartbreaking. You know, his, his mother was crying over the coffin, the entire village was out, everyone was sobbing. And this is just one life. And this is happening repeatedly, every day across
0: Ukraine. And yet we know that the Ukrainian troops are not short of courage. But how are they coping some four months into the war?
1: everyone that we've spoken to has said that morale is still high i know that that there have been some reports about morale dwindling and obviously on the battlefield it's horrendous and people are are living day-to-day fighting in terrible conditions so that that takes its toll but anyone that we have spoken to has said we want to fight for our country we want to defend our country russia has to be stopped you you can't just let Um, You can't give concessions to a bully. And and so they know that that the price is going to be very high, but they are willing to do it because
0: they don't have a choice. That was Nicola Smith from The Daily Telegraph. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark joins us as ever. Michael, um, the head of NATO expressed his desire this week for Ukraine to be helped to move more from Soviet-era weapons to those used by NATO allies. How easy will that be?
4: Uh, well, it's it's already happening to a, a reasonable degree, actually, uh, at the International Coordination Centre at Stuttgart, where all of the Western aid, NATO and non-NATO, is being coordinated they say that they realize that the Ukrainians are pretty well out now of artillery ammunition, the old Soviet artillery ammunition, like the 152 millimeter stuff. But they've got they've got a lot of NATO artillery there now. They've got a lot of NATO caliber shells and increasingly NATO systems to fire them with, which are 155s, not 152s. And they're getting more and more artillery tubes and howitzers to, to do that. So that transition is already taking place there will be a fair old way to go. But funnily enough, you know, this um, uh, goes along with the Russian narrative. You know, when the Russians say that Ukraine is not in NATO, but my goodness, NATO is certainly in Ukraine. That is Mm. in a way true because the Ukrainian forces already have been retrained Uh, from 2014 on a Western basis and increasingly their system is becoming westernized and the more more material we now give to Ukraine we're starting to give them now uh, as we're Western systems not finding old Soviet systems to send in and so it is a difficult transition but it's it's uh, absolutely inevitable now.
0: And when that transition is complete how much of a difference will it make?
4: It'll make a huge difference eventually because these NATO systems are much better than Soviet systems or Russian systems and they're better than the old Soviet systems that they are replacing. But the problem is is, uh, training. I mean, people have to be trained and even though training can be collapsed from three months into three weeks and is being done, all of that takes Ukrainians off the front line. It means that they've got to train the trainers and then they've got to go and train their troops. So we can't expect this to be transformative in the short term. But in the medium term, I think it will be transformative. Mm. What do I mean by the medium term? Probably end of the year.
0: Stay with us, Michael. Well, back in January, everyone was trying to second guess what action Russia would or wouldn't take. A month before the invasion, SITREP spoke to Petro bukovsky in Kyiv. He's an analyst at the think tank, the Ilko Kurachev Democratic Initiatives Foundation. This is how he saw it on the 27th of January.
2: The capital is important but I don't think that even if Russians uh, would seize the city that it will change the minds of Ukrainians. Well uh, in our history we had uh, a lot of times when the major or oh, capitals were taken by the enemy and uh, that doesn't stop us to uh, resist the invasion.
0: And what would you do if you heard that an invasion had begun?
2: As a citizen I will go to the mobilization center. I'm a um, I have a military say, ticket, and uh, I'm by the law I'm obliged to appear uh, in case of mobilization, and then uh, I will be in uh, this, uh, uh, I will be orders. Then what to do as a as a conscript?
0: That was in January, four weeks before the invasion, and Petro is with us again. So, Petro, were you conscripted into Ukraine's armed forces?
2: So, since uh, I was no, I did not serve and I had no military profession, they said that uh i should be in the city so uh, i have to wait until i will be called so uh, actually they have the list of the people who had a, who had experience and uh, who uh, have no experience and as far as i understood uh, they need right now the people uh, who served in the army some in time but first of all the people who were mobilized uh, between 2014 and 2021 and who at least had some uh, experience of serving in the army during the a previous stage of the war until the full scale of Russian invasion.
0: And how have you been, Petro?
2: Well, the life here is tense. Uh, if you look at the people in Kiev, uh, people try to accommodate, to adapt themselves to the life under uh, threat, permanent threat. Uh, most of the people uh, who can leave the city, they uh, left it, uh, either abroad or uh, live in the suburbs, uh, in the countryside. So my family right now, uh, it lives in the countryside, uh, uh, not far from Kyiv, but uh, in a a safe place.
0: You were right about the resolve of the people to defend Kyiv, and you talk about life feeling quite tense there at the moment. Um, What is the daily routine like? Can you really probably feel there's a war going on?
2: When I first uh, came uh, down to the subway, and uh, I saw the faces of the people there. These are different faces. Actually, uh, a lot less people were uh, now uh, live in Kiev, And uh, the faces, they are tense, so people are due under great stress. And so, uh, almost everybody uh, re- uh, reads the news from their cell phones uh, about the war and uh, or watch YouTube the news. Right now, like a month after that, the situation is some bit relaxed in Kiel. But it is very, very tense to to hear and to, uh, to, sh- to see and to read the news from the battle in Donbass. So right now, people like, are holding a breath and waiting for the result of the battle in Donbass.
0: Indeed. Uh, and you yourself are in the information business. Uh, as I say, you're working for a Think Tank. Uh, what kind of message are you trying to get out?
2: Well we've already conducted uh, several surveys among the IDPs who live right now in the western Ukraine uh, who moved uh, who were forced to evacuate from the central and uh, from the central eastern and southern regions and we also made a poll among the people so uh, and we noticed a very interesting trend so the closer people live to the actual war zone the more uh, radical and defiant they are and the less uh, uh, and uh, less and less they support any kind of concessions. So right now, if we look at the uh, public opinion, so 78% of the people who live in eleven uh, central and western regions of Ukraine, they uh, support no, no concessions to Russia, and 90 and uh, 94% believe in victory over Russia. And uh, when uh, they people were asked what the victory means to you. Uh, 41% said that the victory means the uh, uh, liberation of all territories, all territories including Crimea and Donbass. And another 41% said that it's a complete uh, elimination of the Russian army and uh, uh, assistance to insurgency and collapse of Russian Federation. So actually people feel that uh, Russia is itself an existential threat and people are determined. To fight to the end. And I am talking about the people who stayed in the country.
0: You said earlier that everyone is watching to see what's going to happen in Donbass. How do you envisage the coming months?
2: The coming months will be very tough uh, since we see that uh, Russia still has a superiority in the air and their attack helicopters uh, are quite nasty in a close combat. So it still we lack uh, the means of uh, protecting the, our uh, units uh, from the uh, attack helicopters, uh, from the Russian Air Force, and we still lack the long-range artillery to uh, defeat the Russian artillery. Uh, as you know, we are running out of the Soviet-type ammunition, and still we have no sufficient supply of the long-range uh, NATO standard artillery.
0: And what are your hopes for the future?
2: Well, if we receive enough sufficient means of uh, defense, then I think we can not only stop, uh, but also to draw back the Russian forces. Right now, so if we don't have this kind of sufficient support, we can only stop, but it will be very hard to recover. And that means that uh, there will be very bitter sense among the people who lost their relatives, who lost their homes, and uh, who were not able to draw back Russians just because of the fact they lacked uh, ammunition and they lacked weapons. So they had no deficit of courage, no deficit of spirit uh, and experience and combat skills.
0: Petro Bukovsky, thank you so much for your time. It's good to speak to you. Uh, Michael Clark, a couple of weeks ago, a former commanding general, United States Army Europe, predicted that in the coming weeks, Ukraine's troops would be better supplied and would start to turn the tide against the Russians. Do you see it that way? And if not, how long can they hang on for?
4: Yeah, it's a really important question. I mean, yes, in the longer run, the Ukrainians are in a relatively good position, both in terms of numbers, because they can put in about 400,000 into the field, whereas the Russians have only got an army of 280,000 unless they mobilise, which they seem not to want to do. But the problem is getting from now until then when their numbers will be in the field and when they've got the equipment, because the Ukrainians are saying, you know, that they need you know, a minimum of 500 main battle tanks, and they've only been promised 270, and most of them haven't arrived. They need at least 300 multiple launch rocket systems. They've been promised 50. They need, they say, 1,000... 155 millimetre artillery pieces and they've got 250 on the way and the point is that although these things will turn up eventually they've had less than half of what they've been promised so far the danger is that in the meantime they could lose the Donbass because of lack of numbers and lack of weapons. And they might be pressured into a a sort of ceasefire or a peace settlement that they really don't want. So I think the Ukrainians are entering into a very dangerous period where this Russian offensive has only got a certain amount of time to succeed before it begins to, to fall back. But the Russians know that, and they're pressing very, very hard in the Donbas, around Kharkiv now. They may be having to defend in um, And I think the Russians know that this is the time when they might be able to snuff out Ukrainian resistance militarily. And the Ukrainians mm. have got to hang on until the autumn or the other side of the autumn. And I'm, I'm not sure that that will be very easy for them.
0: Now, the new head of the British Army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, has started his job this week and he's got a bit of first-day reaction on Twitter. Pay increase. Fill in for what feels like a pay cut due to the cost of living and increase of tax.
2: Perhaps one of the first things that would be useful is to reevaluate the get-you-home, home-to-duty and food and incidentals allowance. They haven't changed for years, yet food and fuel has skyrocketed, leaving soldiers out of pocket and making the job less financially attractive. It's an easy win.
1: Officers and warrant officers mostly have laptops and work from home a few days a week, so use less fuel. Those on the shop floor don't have that luxury and are being punished financially. Those in niche jobs who get food and incidentals allowance are meant to feed themselves on £7 a day. That's nowhere near enough today. How about true equality in policy? The policy on female hair and makeup has now been changed to allow women to be more feminine. When will you review the
0: men's? It's about time beards were allowed. Just a few thoughts expressed on day one. Well, the Minister for Defence, People and Veterans, Leo Doherty, has been outlining what's being done to help personnel during the cost of living crisis.
4: Armed Forces personnel, like everyone else, are not immune to international inflationary pressures and the cost of living pressures. And I'm therefore very pleased to announce that the Defence Secretary has chosen to freeze the daily food charge for our Armed Forces personnel we will also be limiting the increase in accommodation charges to 1%. We will also ensure the council tax rebate reaches those in military accommodation. And we are increasing the availability of wraparound childcare that is free at the start of the new academic year.
0: Uh, Michael Clark, uh, will those words reassure soldiers?
4: Uh, well, they will to an extent, or they ought to to an extent, because if the uh, if our inflationary pressures are getting very great, the fact is that if soldiers can say, well, it's not going to it's not going to go above this level, at least for the next 12 months, that will be quite reassuring. But they are un- undoubtedly under pressure. And as inflationary pressures you know affect the population as a whole, the armed forces are always assumed uh, to take it on the chin. Well, you know, eventually they're not going to really do that.
0: So tell us a bit more about the new CGS and what he has in his in-tray.
4: Well, Patrick Saunders, he's a very go-ahead officer, he's a a sort of ball of of, uh, initiative and ideas. Um, He's also a great listener. I've known him for some time and he he listens very carefully to all views as far as I can see. The the biggest issue I think in his intro is transformation. You know, the army's got quite a long way to go between now and let's say 2030, when it is supposed to transform itself into a a real 21st century force. I mean, the Navy and the Air Force, they know where they're going because they recapitalized earlier, but the army has got those, you know, foothills still to get through and and Patrick is in the, the forefront of that. That. the danger for him and for the army is that they'll be required to do something really quite important long before they're ready you know European security is getting worse you know we may find ourselves in really difficult crises in the next 18 months to two years where the army sort of assumed it would have most of this decade to reposition itself I think you know the, the world is getting is getting much more dark more quickly mm. than anyone assumed
0: And on a lighter note, that tweet about beards being allowed, do you think it'll ever happen?
4: No. Beards (laughs) are for the Navy. That's the point. I mean, you know, the Navy loves its beards. They don't have moustaches in the Navy, but they can grow a full set of beards. And the Air Force, they they glory in their moustaches. The Army allow moustaches. I don't think they'll ever go for beards because it'll make them look like sailors.
0: Thanks, Michael. Stay with us. Well, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says Turkey's security concerns over Finland and Sweden joining the alliance are legitimate. Both countries applied to join NATO last, last month in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Turkey opposes the move, accusing the two countries of supporting terrorist groups. Mr Stoltenberg, who is in Finland, said talks on the issue will continue. It's where Exercise Arrow 22 recently took place, which was largely than ever and involved 120 personnel from the Queen's Royal Hussars. Claire Sadler was there. Exercise Arrow
5: 22 is a joint expeditionary force event. Its aim is to help deter Russian aggression whilst improving the ability of multinational troops to work together. Soldiers from the Queen's Royal Hussars are embedded into a Finnish Armored Brigade. Major George Tripanis is from B Squadron QRH.
6: They operate in a different way to us and so over the last two days uh, we've been training together ensuring that our signs and how we speak over the radio uh, we can understand each other Uh, but also uh, they operate in this area a lot so we've been learning a lot how to work in the wooded areas um, rather than what probably traditionally we know in Salisbury Plain.
5: 120 British personnel and 14 Challenger tanks are taking part, amongst them driver Trooper Scarlett Martin. For me personally, as the driver, I'm learning more about the terrain and more boring things like that, about um, driving on the little bit of the snow at the beginning of the week and the sand um, and also just keeping an eye out for the um, Finnish uh, infantry because they're all scattered around the woodland area and it's, it's quite a dense dense forest around here. The US, Latvia and Estonia are also involved. In total, nearly 3,500 personnel are here at Poyangakas, Ninesalo. Colonel Reina Kusmanen is the commander, armored brigade. He explains what's unfolding on the training ground.
6: We actually arrived to the situation where two battalions were fighting against each other. Blue battalion was attacking from south to north, and yellow battalion was attacking from north to south. And they met actually in this area. We saw that. And obviously it seems that blue is heading to north, so so yellow is delay.
5: Whilst Britain has taken part in this before, this is the first time it's provided so many troops and tanks. The numbers were decided before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but the ongoing war means Arrow-22 has drawn more interest from international media than ever before. And that is because Finland has a border with Russia that is more than 800 miles long. And it wasn't that long ago, in 1939, during the Winter War, that the Soviet Union invaded the country, taking 11% of its territory, pushing the border further west. Finnish soldier Lieutenant Willy Lindbergh says the similarities with what's happening in Ukraine now are obvious.
2: Russia has always been our, it's the biggest neighbour and for a long time it was the biggest part for cooperation and trade but of course everyone is talking about it a bit more now, a bit more worried. It's of course in everyone's, in everyone's back mind that there, it is happening and it is going on.
5: The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, was also here to see British troops in action ahead of a meeting with his Finnish counterpart. He told us this exercise delivers a message to adversaries.
6: Well, first of all, it just says that we're all part of alliances, whether you're in NATO or not, that countries who stand up for the same values, the respect for human rights, the rule of law, freedom of democracy, do exercise together, come together, not just politically, but also militarily, because, you know, our freedoms are often underpinned, by the security that defence provides, and therefore you have to exercise and prove it and test it and improve it as a result. And so coming here, uh, you know, we are a Jeff nation, uh, as is Finland, one of the ten nations uh, exercising together with a country that's historically been neutral, is a, is a strong message, not, not just to, to Russia, but to, you know, our other friends, that Britain is, you know, one of the lead security nations in Europe, if not one of the biggest, and therefore, you know, part of that obligation we have is using our power to convene, work together, develop alliances and improve both of how we operate at, at, at battle space really.
5: Arrow 22 is just part of a series of planned exercises across Europe over the summer. Around 8,000 British troops will be involved in one of the largest deployments
0: since the Cold War. That was Claire Sadler reporting. And finally, a series of commemorations have taken place in the Falklands and across the UK to mark four decades since the end of the conflict and liberation of the islands. At one event at the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire, the Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radican, gave us a rare personal insight into what the conflict meant to him.
3: I was a, a teenager growing up when, when the war emerged. I had a, an older brother who was a radio operator in HMS Hermes. I can remember the agony of my mother watching the news um, to just check that he was all right. This feels much more vivid than, I think, some of the inevitably, the, the wars that were longer, a longer time ago. Um, but I, I also think this was a big, big event, uh, 40 years on, Um, we need to reflect on what was achieved. We need to reflect on the clarity of the British government and its certainty that it was willing to go to war to liberate the Falkland Islands because the people there had wanted to be British and they've reaffirmed that since. And this is very, very clear that, that we will continue to support them.
0: Uh, Michael Clark, commemorations like these and dates like these, anniversaries, they really are a moment to reflect on how the nature of warfare has changed.
4: Yes, and, and Tony Radikin there was reminding us that within easy memory, you know, within his memory as a teenager, my memory as a, uh, as a 30 year old, um, to now the Falklands, uh, the uh, Ukraine war, you know, within that easy scope of memory, we've got the difference between a a traditional war, sort of 20th century war and a 21st century war. And here we are now in Ukraine looking at the contrast between a war that is taking place in space because Elon Musk's Starlink satellites, uh, it looks as if they're they're being targeted now by Russia, who is trying to take them down and and, uh, they're launching more of them, right down to fighting in the streets of uh, Severodonetsk. And so, in a way, you know, we always said that one day war would go from space right down to the old verities of fighting hand to hand. Well, I think that day has now arrived a bit earlier than most of us thought it would.
0: Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time today and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and you can catch up with past programmes on the website com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot. thank you for listening. Bye-bye.